Thank you for listening to our Celebration Sermon Podcast. Celebration is a worshiping community within Heart of White Ministries. We gather at 9 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Heart of White Campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Celebration community in Heart of White Ministries, please visit heartofwhite.com. We're preaching through a series of sermons focused on what you'd call spiritual practices, uh, spiritual disciplines. They're the sorts of things, like an athlete who trains, it's the sort of practices of training that let you enjoy the game. People work out because they love the game, not because they love the workout. And so sometimes we need to build these disciplines in our life, not because they earn credit or bring merit, but because they become the place that God equips us to serve and to grow. Last time we were together, we talked about corporate worship and life together, giving praise to God, what we were created to do, the gathering of gifts. Today, we're gonna look at the spiritual practice of prayer, and I wanna bring to you a particular perspective on how that works, how prayer ministers practically in our lives. And I'll be reading from the passage that Paul wrote from prison. Think about this. Does this sound like a guy who's been unjustly put in jail? It's from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. As you're able, I'll ask you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God as I read. Paul writes this to his friends and indeed to us. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. For the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. And even in our mind's eye, we would picture Paul in chains, left in jail, and yet exhorting and encouraging others to rejoice. Indeed, you lifted this apostle on eagle's wings, the promise from Isaiah. And from there, he has spoken uh, your word for us and to us, recorded in his letter, then preserved across centuries. And now in an amazing way, we get to unroll the scroll as it were, translate and hear what an apostle would say from jail to a people living in 2024, Holland, Michigan. Holy Spirit, you superintended that work. So now complete it in us, illumine to our hearts and minds uh, that which you would speak and call us to, uh, guard your people from my own brokenness and confusion. Instead, make yourself known. We thank you that you are a God who has 
called us to be with you. We thank you for that and trust you and pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said together, amen and amen. God has a remedy for our worry. It's very interesting in this particular passage. There is a command, and it is this, don't worry. Now, the New International Version translates it with a little more finesse, do not be anxious. But a great rendering in the Greek would be this, do not worry. Worry about nothing. You see, the verb is imperative. It's a command. But it also kind of picks up on that 1988 hit, don't worry, be happy. So how do you do that? How do you not worry? What does it mean to be happy? Can that even be done? I'm not sure. You know, we live in a world, and I'll just say this and pass on, we live in a world where there is good reason to worry. There are plenty of circumstances and situations that any honest person would look at and find worrisome. And because of that, the apostles' command, do not worry, kind of challenges us. Okay, how do you do that? How do you face this life and not worry? So I'd ask you, as you listen, consider how do you deal with the worry in your life? Many times folks will deal with worry by just ignoring the worrisome things. Denial, oh, there's no problem. It'll all work out somehow. Well, there's things in my life that may or may not work out, but they're out of my control. Don't worry in light of those. Sometimes people will go numb in the face of worrisome circumstances, drugs, liquor, pornography. They try to block off worry with an addiction. I love the book, Entertaining Ourselves to Death. Sometimes we'd rather fill ourselves. I, I mean, why be concerned about North Korea when we have Netflix? <laughs> Sometimes we justify our worry. I'm just a dad. That's what we do. No. Ask yourself, how do you deal with the worry in your life? There is good reason to be worried in our world today, but the scriptures command a different response. And it's not about ignoring the worrisome realities of life. The scriptures offer a different remedy for those realities than the world could ever give. Paul says, don't worry, be praying. Do not be anxious about anything. Paul is just picking up the words from, oh, who was that guy? Jesus. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6? Don't worry about food or drink or clothing or tomorrow. I remember meditating on that text shortly after the first time I was left unemployed. Boy, I had a circumstance that was pressing in, but the words of Jesus echoed in the words of Paul called me to a different life. How in the world can prayer be a remedy for all the sources of worry that we face? Well, first of all, friends, it can deal with our worry because it's Christian prayer. The specific references to the words of Jesus and Paul, and indeed throughout the scriptures, speak about a particular God, one who is sovereign and gracious. That's the good news of the gospel. One who's made promises like Genesis 50:20. 20. 
when Joseph could look at his brothers and say, though you meant it for evil, God, who would in centuries to come make himself known in Jesus Christ, God will work it for good that many would be saved. We pray to a God who promises not to ab abandon us. He often says to us, as he did to Joshua, don't be afraid, I am with you. And that's what we see in this text this morning. Don't worry, but in all things pray, because God himself is present. You see, this is not just a command this morning, but we see it written from the context of evidence of the Holy Spirit being active and present. We see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Don't be worried, for God is near. The Lord is close. And we see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. He's, Paul speaks of joy. Again, one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's expressions of God at work in Galatians 5. We see gentleness. Imagine being abandoned in, pres in prison and responding with gentleness. There's a different power at work there, friends. How about peace? Written to you from a man who's in prison? That's because he's writing from the context of a real and present Holy Spirit at work in our lives in specific ways because the Spirit is specific. He'll produce joy and gentleness and peace and overcome worry, even in those circumstances. Friends, I want to point something out in Paul's life in this text. Christian prayer is not a technique to get from God whatever we might want. I don't do sermons or seminars on steps to getting what you want from God. Christian prayer is not a technique. Instead, it's an exercise of faith to live into a personal relationship with God himself. I can't connect you to an answer. I want to connect you to God himself. Authentic Christian prayer is a point where the transcendent God intersects with our imminent frame, cause and effect life. It's where we living here have an encounter greater than ourselves. There is a very important distinction between prayer viewed as a transaction or prayer practiced as a relationship. Ask yourself this question. Is your prayer more like a transaction? What do I mean by that? Is your prayer practiced as something that you do with an expectation of something that you will then get? If I do this, then God will be pleased and this will happen. This is what God promised. This is what I'm claiming. Friends, I've sat as people have grieved through a season of darkness and hardness, and they'll say, God never answers my prayer. Now, you want to be gentle in that. And sometimes that's just insight for intercession. But as I've reflected on my own voice saying that, I've realized that more often than not, it's about the experience where I did not receive a particular desired outcome that I asked for. I did not receive what I asked for. And in that tension, suddenly I'm wrestling with, well, maybe I'm not good enough. Or maybe God doesn't care. Maybe I don't have enough faith. We've all heard that. Oh, if you had more faith, you could get 
what you want out of this transaction. Oops. Sometimes people respond, well, I'm not getting what I asked for. There must be no God. I did this with God, I asked in prayer, but I did not get that, my desired outcome. I want to point to you a different way of seeing prayer. It's not about the transaction. It's about the relationship. It's about who do I come to know? It's not so much about that answer. There's something bigger than just this exchange. Yes, there's an exchange. I make requests. Jesus tells us to. But, but in the context of those requests, there comes a relationship with a person. Transaction or relationship. What do I get or who do I come to know? Let me give you a concrete example that I hope will clarify the distinction, namely that well-known promise and practice of date night. Perhaps you've heard it recommended, every married couple ought to have date night. Is Bill a supporter of date night? Yeah, it's a good idea. If, <laughs> do you pursue date night for a transaction or for a relationship? Is date night an opportunity for a husband and wife to step away from all the hustle and bustle of all of life and say, hi there, I remember marrying you. Restoring a relationship, or is it a transaction? Have you ever found yourself where it's more like, well, I took you out for a date, so now I want fill in the blank. I want to go hunting with the boys and you not complain. It could be any number of things. This is a family sermon. We're not going to go into detail. But you can pursue date night as if it's a transaction. I did this. I want that. Where it bears fruit is where date night is an opportunity to push away all the other challenges of life and to get to know a person, to be known by a person. Friends, we live in a deeply consumer-oriented culture. If you read across history, there's ways of thinking that we take for granted that nobody else would ever have conceived of years, centuries ago. Consumer-oriented. Even our relationships get reduced to transactions for our own benefit, and it's dangerous but we're free to do it. It's part of the consumer world. If Family Fair doesn't carry the brand of sugar-free maple syrup that I want, well, I just switch grocery stores. Forget a community institution with employees and services. It's about me and what I want. Am I getting what I want or should I go elsewhere? There seems to be less and less connection and commitment and we grow accustomed to that, and it bleeds over into our prayer life. Now, there can be good reasons to go elsewhere to invest our time and money in relationship, but we've grown too comfortable with walking away from relationships for no more reason than our preference or short-term desire. Let me illustrate again by telling you about how I came face-to-face -face with this in my own life. I would call this Andrew Murray introduces Bill to God. I came to faith, you know my story if you've been here regularly in high school, and I began to realize that many of the people that were shaping my life had read a guy named Andrew Murray. They'd read his books. And so I tried getting an Andrew Murray book, 
And I made it through about three chapters as a high school student. Well, off to college, again, in my university chapter, we're being trained in disciples, and I kept hearing leaders speak of, I learned to pray with Andrew Murray. So I got another Andrew Murray book. I made it through about four chapters, and then I went to seminary. And taking a class in prayer, began to learn history and practices, and I had to write a report on an Andrew Murray book on prayer. So I finished it and wrote the report. I read and it just wasn't there. But after seminary, Marilyn and I relocated. We began with a family, we got a first house. I'm involved in a fairly stressful ministry setting at that time. And in the midst of this, we decided to take a few days away with our uh, daughter and just think and pray and consider our future. And I took an Andrew Murray book. And I remember as Mary Lynn and Nicole were off to bed, sitting down and opening a book that I'd tried a number of times, Andrew Murray's book, uh, The Prayer Life. And you know what chapter one was? The sin of prayerlessness. And I thought, man, here I am, desperate, overwhelmed, working as hard as I can, and you're saying the lack of prayer in my life is a sin? That's pretty insulting. I began to work through it and I began to see my life in a different way. You see, I was thinking about my prayer life as a transactional task. It was on my list of things to do, prepare the bulletin, get the sermon ready, visit these people, do that, run the student ministry, make sure the mortgage is paid. I had my list of tasks. On that task was the task of prayer. And I had kind of intuitively picked up over the years that that task wasn't helping me get those other tasks done. So that task kept falling to the bottom of my list. And I kept wondering, why in the world can I not get to that task? Maybe if I get a new book, I'll be able to do that task better and my other tasks will go well. Maybe if I go to a seminar or get a new prayer journal, I can do that task in a way that helps me get more tasks done. I was looking for the transaction. But I began to see that, no, I wasn't praying because it took a while to dig down, but I realized deep in my heart, I thought my doing ministry was more important than my being with God. I was busy doing things for God and running dry, where Jesus simply called me to be with him, to have a relationship. You see, deep down in my heart, it took digging down several levels. I had to realize that I thought my doing was more important than what Jesus had done and what he called me into that relationship. And that I knew how to take care of sin. I didn't know how to organize my life, but I knew how to take care of sin. What do you do when you see sin in your life? You repent and go to the cross. Now around here, we're often accustomed to saying, I try harder, repent of that. You're either in a relationship with God through grace, or you're trying to build an alternative bridge to God. No, when I began to see the sin of my motivation, I began to have a new way to deal with it, repentance. Go to the God who's loved me. 
Not try harder, not get a new prayer journal, not get this, not get that, no. Run to God. As I took time, I began to realize that I was being pressed because I thought my tasks were the reason God loved me. That getting more tasks done would mean he loved me more. No, Jesus was calling me to be with him. My problem was not one of time. It was one of heart. I needed time with Jesus to let the the gospel of grace shape my heart. I could more easily say no to some things. I could be made a different person in the way I did the things I did. That somehow being shaped by God then had an impact on the way I lived. But it began by realizing I valued my tasks more than I valued that relationship. And I needed to go to the cross with that. The sin causing my prayerlessness was not wasting time. But the sin that led to my prayerlessness was trying to earn my relationship with God rather than receive it by grace. When that's the problem, there is not an app for that. It's going to the cross. So Andrew Murray introduced me to a practice that I've begun to call reverse engineering. I look at my behavior and then reverse engineer what sort of heart would act like that. I listen to my words and my prayers and say, what sort of heart would speak that? In Psalm 26.2, we read, test me, Lord, and try me. Psalm 139.23, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. That applies to worry. Now, let me suggest to you, you never want to have God begin to shine a light on your sin until you're secure in the gospel. I'll often tell folks, I say, oh, Bill, how's it going? And what will I often say? I'm loved by God, and everything else has fallen in line after that. See, if you begin that because of what Jesus did at the cross, I'm loved, then I can begin to see even my sin, my brokenness, my shortcoming as his opportunity to change my heart. And so we move into prayer as a relationship rather than prayer as a transaction. Meditate on those texts. Ask yourself, what would it be like to have God show me where he wanted to work next because I'm secure in the gospel? Let me give you some thoughts about this distinguished prayer. Here's a transactional prayer that many people will be praying over the next months. Lord, cause my preferred candidate to win or at least cause that other rat to lose. Would it be different to pray, Lord, how do you want me to serve your kingdom with regard to my civic life? Do you hear the difference between transactional and relational? That lets you work your way back and ask what kind of heart is motivating this prayer? What might by behavior be telling me about my heart or the motivation? You see, if the purpose of prayer is an ongoing relationship with God in every moment and in every situation, then God himself is the medicine that deals with the symptoms of my worry. You see, if I hear or observe the expression of worry in my life, that's an invitation to dig deep in my heart and say, where do I need to cultivate not a new behavior, but a new relationship, a deeper relationship? 
to go from the prayers that you pray, perhaps even write them down, and to ask what sort of heart would pray in that way. Do I see worry? Ask yourself, what am I worried about? And where does the gospel come to bear? I want to close with a quick reflection on what, what, I think, what I think was one of the most authentic Christian conversions of the 20th century. Perhaps you've read or heard the story of Chuck Colson, at one point former Marine, lawyer for President Nixon, the guy who got the dirty work done, including the dirty work of Watergate. He's busted, about to go to jail. In the course of that, he reads C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, and sees a different way of living. He'll give his life to Christ. And one of the people who witnessed to Chuck Colson was a man from Iowa by the name Harold Hughes. Now, Colson, pretty much a conservative Republican sort of guy. But Harold Hughes from Iowa began to minister to him. They studied the Bible together. They prayed together. And let me tell you two words that describe Harold Hughes. This is back from the 70s, some of you, previous century. <laughs> Harold Hughes was from Iowa. He was a senator as a Democrat and known as a liberal. So what you see in this discipling moment is a liberal Democrat from Iowa and a conservative Republican from Virginia who are bound together by something greater than their agenda. Because they learn to pray together and study scripture together under the authority of something and someone who is greater that they could then share life together, even across differences. Have things changed? They have in our lives. Can you picture a conservative Republican and a liberal Democrat praying together, studying the scripture together, being shaped by God together? It would be almost like, you don't have to agree with me, I'm just suggesting that maybe, sorta, it would be almost like God was preparing two missionaries God, missionaries, and sending them to their separate tribes. Imagine. You see, when prayer is about a relationship rather than a transaction, what that relationship does is then prepare us for other relationships and other service. That's how Paul can say, don't worry, but in all things pray. Let me pray for you right now. Father, I thank you for the goodness of your grace that because of what Jesus did at the cross on our behalf, he has offered us life as we never knew it in exchange for the consequences of our sin. I thank you for that great promise and that in the midst of that, you meet us and you shape us. Thank you for your word, but thank you for this table what we see is bread and juice, but what by the promise of your word and the presence of your spirit is a place we meet you face to face. Father, guide us and speak to us as we come to the table and prepare. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our celebration community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.